Hey, this is Mike Goldberg, the voice of Bellator MMA. Join us right now for MMA Fancast. You are listening to MMA Fancast. Here are your hosts, Jim Mooney and Luke Payson. Welcome to the show. Today I'm joined by Jeremy the Adonis Mitchell, an undefeated pro, getting ready to fight for 247 Fighting Championships coming up in a couple weeks, March 14th at the Princecape Arena in Cannonsburg, Pennsylvania. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I know we're catching you just after you got back from training. How was that today? What are you doing training-wise two weeks out from the fight? Uh, just just now about tapering down, uh, finishing off my last hard sparring day, uh, which was yesterday. Today, just moving around, addressing anything that I really felt yesterday in my sparring. So from this point forward, it's more about speed, just drilling the game plan, and uh, just letting my body heal. Absolutely. That recovery part is really important, coming in fresh to make sure that you're fresh. Uh, you had mentioned to me that you were hard sparring at a different gym, a little outside of West Virginia and Virginia. Tell us about that gym and what your relationship is with that gym for your hard sparring days. Oh, man. Uh, so the, it's a gym called uh, Southwest Martial Arts, and I've, I've actually got to work with them quite a bit for this camp. Uh, see, West Virginia MMA is a lot newer here. Um, I mean, it's, it's been practiced here for a while, but competition here just became legal uh, maybe three to four years ago. Now, Virginia, it's been going around a little, for a little while, uh, and there, but there's just not as many serious gyms in the area. There's a lot of part-time gyms, part-time fighters. Most people have to to work and uh, fight on the side. And this gym is also another gym that has a lot of other full-time fighters. So as I was coming up as an amateur, I seeked out fighting most of the people from their team just due to the fact that they had the other highest competition. And when you're when you're really coming up, you want to you want to fight the best people you can, so you get a real look. And through that, after I turned pro, we we kind of just decided that was a little bit better to uh, to work together and create the best fighters that we can, and instead of you know always go against each other. Well, that's a great plan that you guys came up with. And your home gym is Advantage Martial Arts in Princeton, West Virginia, and talk a little bit about that gym and why you're there and how that's been for you from your uh, amateur days now into your pro days. Oh, man, uh, it has changed so much. Uh, when, when I first started out, we were in a, a tiny little building. I was probably about 12 years old, and uh, it was a very boxing-heavy gym with uh, very little jiu-jitsu. And at, coming up, you know, I, I did jiu-jitsu and wrestling throughout but only dabbled in it. My main focus was boxing. Uh, most people, judging off my record, would assume that I'm a grappler, but really, uh, which now I've developed the grappling skill set, but really I started out in USA Boxing and uh, amassed an 8-1 USA Boxing record. And so then we ended up moving to a bigger facility. We got a bunch of people in here, and now it's became, uh, it was always an MMA gym, but it, now it's became a uh, what I would call an official uh, more of a professional environment, more so than a bunch of people with a dream. To where now we have people that fight on bigger shows. We have uh, teammates coming up fighting on the uh, bare knuckle card. Here lately, we've had a bunch of amateurs getting ready for uh, some shows. So we've had a lot of people in the gym, man. It's just uh, been an overall evolution. Well, it's great that you've been with the gym that long because you said you started back when you were around 12. So obviously, you're one of the 
uh, maybe one of the main fighters, at least somebody that's been there a long time. You are listed at 5'9". Your opponent, Fatty, is 6 feet. What type of training or sparring partners do you have uh, to work with height-wise? Um, well, see, I know a lot of people, and I feel like that's, uh, that's gotten previous opponents for him is that it usually is hard to find people that are that height, uh, or at least that height and not in a very heavy weight class. And so, fortunately, uh, we do have a few six-foot guys, um, but most of my sparring partners realistically are around 6'2", six, 6'3", six, and either uh, middleweight or heavier. So, usually when I get in here and I, I get around the six-footers or even at other gyms around people that's around Betty's height, it's, uh, it's kind of a relief compared to the bigger uh, six foot two, six foot three sparring partners that I have been having. So I feel like the range should not be an issue and the, the reach or anything. Absolutely. One of the nice things about having a gym and then the other gym that you go to in Virginia is getting a lot of different looks. And one of the things that will always happen in MMA is that even the same fighter with the same height, the same weight as somebody else will have different looks. That's something that we see a lot in MMA is that on paper, in boxing at least, you can kind of look at somebody's stance, height, weight, and maybe have a general understanding of what they may do. Um, because obviously boxing is great, um, and there's still a lot of varieties within boxing, but when you start to throw in the full MMA, there's just so many different uh, ways to win and ways to make your game. You have won both of your professional fights by Rick a Choke, and that's why I think you said that you're not you would still consider yourself a striker, but you happen to have finished both your fights. Um, how does that happen? Kind of in your last fight, how did it go from stand-up to a rear naked choke win? Um, so uh, it's been happening to me ever since um, since I was an amateur. Uh, most of my wins have always came by rear naked choke, and a lot of the times I'm never the one that initiates the grappling. Do not get me wrong. I've, I'm a purple belt in jiu-jitsu. I've wrestled for years. The grappling is definitely there. But at the same time, I understand that when you get in there and the lights are on you and the adrenaline's going, you revert to what you really do. And so with that being said, I always try to strike. And actually, the guy that I fought last comes from a very heavy boxing gym. But as soon as we got into an exchange, he was the one that initiated the takedown. It seems that guys usually get an exchange or so with me, and then they'll initiate the takedown and somehow just end up wrapping them up. But... I actually, even as far as back as my amateur career, I, had, um, I, I was listed on Tapology of 7-7. Seven and seven. My real record was 14-7 and seven because uh, where, as I was saying, that uh, MMA was newer in West Virginia. The reporting wasn't as well as it should have. The promoter did not turn in all the results. But out of those 14 amateur wins, I had one arm bar, one triangle, and one TKO, the rest of those were rear naked chokes as well as the two professional ones. And I think it just comes from my striking setting up good grappling situations for me. Absolutely. That's one of the exciting parts about MMA is that just the record of whether or not how they won is not always indicative of how the fight actually went. One of the things that's so exciting about somebody that's well-rounded, you hear that expression a lot, it's very important in MMA that you're well-rounded so that even though it says RNC on most of your wins, it actually should say in parentheses by way of really good striking, you know? <laughs> and I think of, I think of uh, Donald Cowboy Cerrone. 
uh, when he beat Barbosa, it was a jab, uh, a left jab, knocked Barbosa down, and then he got a rear naked choke. And it was one of those things where it looks like, oh, submission, but it was really he almost had him out prior to uh, the choke. So that's kind of why it's always exciting to see live MMA for anybody within driving distance of Cannonsburg, um, Pennsylvania. It's really important to come out and support 247 Fighting Championship. It's going to be great, obviously, to see you live. Now, when I introduced you in the beginning, I called you Jeremy the Adonis Mitchell. And I looked up what the Adonis was, and according to what I found, Adonis was actually a Greek god of beauty and grace. Is that why you named yourself the Adonis, and how did you come with that name? Okay, so I, um, I actually started out as Pretty Boy um, when I initially started fighting. And then, as I got older, I, I, was, <laughs> I was just like, I can't, I can't be 30 years old and be called Pretty Boy. Um, I mean, I guess I could, but I, I, I needed something newer, and plus, everybody's had the name Pretty Boy. And I, I essentially got the name because I would go in, I would fight, and I would win. I wouldn't mess my hair up. Everything was still good. And everybody just kept saying, uh, man, you, you act like such a pretty boy. You act like such a pretty boy. And I always feel like the name should select you. You shouldn't select the name. And then as I got older, I was like, uh, I, I've evolved. I'm, I'm new now. I was like, the Greek god of no perfection. <laughs> you know, and I'm modest. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. It's definitely a great sounding name. And like you said, it's different than saying pretty boy and it can last longer. You know, obviously the Adonis is a great fight name. You mentioned not wanting to be called pretty boy when you're 30. And obviously it made me instantly think of Steven, the wonder boy, um, Thompson who's 37 or maybe 38 by now. Um, and I thought the same thing, you know, he got that nickname, um, as a karate or a Taekwondo, it might've been Taekwondo, but in his younger days, when he was a wonder boy in his teenage years, he was such a wonder boy that obviously that name stuck. And it's one of those things where sometimes fight nicknames um, need to change or evolve with you as your um, game evolves. And I'll bring up Misha, who ended Misha Tate, who ended her career as Misha Cupcake Tate. I, I bring her up because, A, Cupcake is a hilarious fight nickname. <laughs> um, and it's because she likes cupcakes. She actually just really liked mm -hmm. eating cupcakes. And she ended up looking forward to fighting to be over. That way she could eat her cupcake after because of her diet. But her first nickname was Misha Takedown Tate uh, because she had a, a wrestling background and a lot of her fights went takedown. And she actually decided to change her fight nickname for something you brought up, which is to show that she's not one-dimensional anymore. She didn't want mm -hmm. people thinking, oh, Misha Takedown Tate, like that's her skill. And so what's cool about fight nicknames is that they give a fighter the opportunity to give a little bit of flair and a little bit of experience of what's going on in their, um, in their life as far as uh, them as a fighter goes. Have you ever given um, a fighter in your gym or somebody you knew their fight nickname? And if so, what was it? Um, I, I can't say I have. I, I really can't. Um, most people either come up with their own or they, they've already developed it because, uh, like, for example, we have a lot of wrestlers in our gym. So a lot of those mm -hmm. guys have already developed what they would want to be called by the time they get here. Um, I've gotcha. had a few suggestions I've thrown out, and I can't really remember them, but most of them are me just, uh, just messing with people. Yeah. Uh, well, keep throwing so them out. They're not going you to never know. <laughs> yeah, keep throwing it out. You never know what somebody's going to use. And it's a fun way. I talk a lot about this show about how 
MMA really looks like a one-on-one sport. And of course it is during the fight. But mm-hmm. every corner, uh, you know, coaches are part of your team. And then there's that whole team that trained with you. And so while we might think of football, maybe baseball, basketball is more of a team sport because you have to interact with your teammates in the, in the game itself. How do you think your team plays in and that teamwork plays into you as a fighter? Oh, man. We go out there essentially what looks like alone, but we're never really alone because you get these looks. You get these the the look of what your opponent is all it is is just um it all fighting is is taking data that you have received in the gym and applying it to what you've done and you get those different looks from your training partners and of course you cannot you know train together every day and work so hard and so close that that there isn't a bond it is kind of like like i understand there's football teams and they have a bond but there's no bond like training with somebody to give you because you see people at their weakest and their strongest points. And honestly, when I go out there, I, I never even feel like I'm wrong. Because everybody that has helped me, everybody that has trained with me, it, I am a representation of them. So I feel like none of it would be possible. I couldn't do this alone. I couldn't do it in a garage. I couldn't do it, you know, somewhere on my own. I have to have my team. Otherwise, I wouldn't be anything. Yeah, that's not only very kind and humble and full of gratitude for your team, it also really shows where MMA is that it's such a skill-based sport. There was a time, I mean, Rich B. Ace Franklin famously, uh, when he was actually an early pro fighter back in the late 90s, early 1000s, he would train in a shed with just a heavy bag. Now, I'm not saying that was how he was fighting in the UFC, but I know that was kind of his thing, even as a pro fighter, but those days are obviously gone because the skill level has increased so much that it's really about getting all the skills around you. Um, and I saw on Facebook you mentioned it was a great uh, before and after photo. Uh, talk a little bit about that. I think it was maybe yesterday or a couple of days ago you posted a before and after photo from your last fight till now. Talk about that. Mm-hmm. So um, my last fight, I, I, so I made my pro debut about a year and a half, going on two years ago. And then I had been booked several times any place from between New Hampshire and Florida. And it seemed that every time an event would get close, my opponent would withdraw or anything. And it just, it it was hard to be self-motivated. You can only be self-motivated for so long. And, and that's where it really comes in handy to have a team. And so I found myself kind of in a rut, especially with my conditioning. Now, don't get me wrong, guy. I trained very hard especially focused on skills, but, and I got my road work in, my sprints and stuff, but it was, it was really hard to get myself through the more grueling parts of my strength and conditioning. And because it was hard to invest it, never knowing if I was actually going to get the fight or if I was just going to break my body down for nothing. Whereas this fight, I mean, you know, Fatty doesn't pull out of fights. Fatty's as serious about this sport as I am, and that's why I'm excited to fight him. Just as an amateur, I spoke to you about finding the toughest challenges you can, and that's, I expect this fight to be no, no different. It, it's easy to get to a big show. It's hard to stay there, and I want to know when I get there that I'm ready to be there. So with that being said, it's a lot easier for me to take this camp more serious, I guess, and, and I've been putting in the work. And once I'd actually got in there and got the fight, I, it relit the spark. So with this fight, I've put everything into it. There's not a day that's went by 
I haven't missed a day of training since my fight. I was in here that following Monday. I haven't missed a day. I take one day a week, and every other day I'm in here two to three times a day. So, well, it's great to hear you as motivated as you are, and you said it. You know, it's easy. Uh, we brought up football, so I'll stay with the football analogy. You know, and I've talked to people about this. That one of the hardest parts about being a fighter, it could be amateur, it could be pro, is the fall through fights, the canceled fights, the injury withdrawal fights, the misweight fights, whatever the fights don't happen. Because that doesn't happen in football. There's a season, you know, okay, it's, it, whether it's every Saturday, every Sunday, or like the NFL is now doing Thursday nights, doesn't matter. They have that schedule and they know no matter what, like that's when, that's when their next big day is. And I think in many ways, fighters that come from team sports sometimes miss the fact that you don't have a guaranteed schedule, you know? And so sometimes you get lulls in between of a year or more and you're trying to train every day and it's easy to kind of lose because there's no end in sight. There's no goal in sight. And you mentioned fatty being active and you being active, which is absolutely true. You know, it's, it's good. Would you rather fight every two or three months? What would be your perfect number of fights a year? If you had a, a crystal ball and could say how many times you had to fight a year, what would it be? Every weekend, man. This is what I love. Uh, like I said, I grew up boxing. So, you know, it was nothing to go fight every weekend or every other week or at least once a month. I would love to get in there once a month. If, if everything went perfect in every fight I left with no bumps or bruises, I would love to be in there the next week because that's the only time that you can really see a true testament of, of your real progress. I mean, you can see a progress in a gym, but it's really about what happens when the pressure pressure's on because you can work new things, you can try new things, and it goes great in the gym. What happens when the lights come on, you know? And that's where I really thrive. I've never been a gym warrior. I've always been a competitor. So if you would train with me, it's never the same as if you'd compete against me. And so I just love the lights, man. It's my favorite part. I train so hard every day that fight day is kind of like a relief. Um, you know, I only have to fight for 15 minutes maximum of the day. And that's, uh, that's a relief. So I would yeah, love that relief classic, come once a month. <laughs> that's the classic train hard, fight easy, right? That a lot yes. of times, if you keep your training at a level of 15 minute fight, even if everything breaks loose and it's crazy, um, that's a short training. That's short. That's easy in a way compared to putting yourself through what you're currently doing on a regular basis. And also you talk about some of the growth and how you've grown over your amateur now into pro. Um, do you ever watch like an old, old, maybe first or second out of your 14 um, or really 21 amateur fights? Do you ever go back and look at them and how much do you see that you've grown and changed because you're a 21 fight uh, amateur career to where you are now? Oh, it, it blows my mind, man. It absolutely blows my mind. Um, just seeing really the maturity and the confidence. Uh, obviously, my skills have improved. I'm, I'm professional now, and I don't necessarily just mean that in the title. I mean that in the way that I carry myself and the way that I treat this. There's no longer, oh, I'm sore, uh, and an excuse comes out. It's, oh, I'm sore, well, I've got to go to work. We all have tough days at work. And, and so really, it's the, the mental side that I see the biggest change. Obviously, like I said, the skills happen. If you show up every day and you work hard every day, you're going to get better. But no matter how much better you get, if you don't have the mental stamina, the confidence, and the mental endurance to stay in there, none of that really matters. You have to have skill, will, and heart. And seeing myself develop as I've grown older, like I said, started at 12, I was a, I was a kid. 
and grow into a man and be where I am now, it, it just blows my mind. Uh, I am now the person that when I was younger, I wanted to be. And I feel like a lot of people can't say that. Would you say that about who you are as a person alongside being a fighter? And if so, how have you grown as a person? Uh, absolutely. And it's just the way that, and I blame the person that I am on fighting. It shows me that when things do get tough, and I know it sounds cliche to say that you don't back down. It teaches you the discipline. And that's what martial arts is truly about. The martial arts side is separated from the fighting side. It's, it's made me a harder individual, and I feel like it's also taught me to be more compassionate and more understanding of others, because I understand how hard things can be, but I also see the potential in everybody, including myself, to be able to work through it. So it, it, without this, I think, you know, you have people, especially in younger generations, even the generation that I grew up in, that have a lot of stuff handed to them, or when bad things happen, they try to run and find like the emergency person to dump it off on. And thanks to this, I'm not that person. Well, you bring up a great point about understanding what real perseverance develops, both as a person and as a fighter. And also, one of the things that I talk a lot about when I'm talking to people about the emotional stuff is when you learn a skill, when you increase a skill in your life, there's a certain sense of, uh, emotional happiness, relief, sense of accomplishment and pride. And one of the weird parts about adulthood, and maybe you could say that's 20 and up, 25 and up, certainly 30 and up, is the average person that's over, let's say, out of college, or if they didn't go to college, doesn't really matter, 25 and up, they, they, they sort of learn less and less throughout their life. Because if you go back to when you were a kid, it's, it's tying your shoes, it's making peanut butter jelly sandwich, it's learning to ride a bike, it's, um, you know, you're just, you know, the whole childhood, not to mention some of the stuff you learn before you can even remember, like walking. But if you see a kid learn to walk as a baby, they're like so excited because their brain is, oh my goodness, I know how to do something I didn't know how to do before, you know? And one of the interesting things about the psychological side of fighting is that you always have to be as a fighter running to learn more than you knew last week or last month or last year. And I think when people in fighting stay, uh, stagnate, you see that. You know, you see people that don't develop. And I think that also relates back to what you were saying. As a, as a person, once you get comfortable with the classic phrase, be comfortable being uncomfortable, once you get comfortable saying, I'm going to go to the gym, there's going to be somebody there who tries to teach me something from a uh, technical perspective that maybe I haven't done before, doesn't feel comfortable, and I'm going to get good at doing something that I didn't know how to do before. What is that like to you when that light bulb goes off, whether it's working from a switch stance, whether it's working a skill that you otherwise maybe haven't used yet or been kind of like maybe slow to pick up? What's that like um, when something clicks and you finally mastered or at least improved something that you otherwise hadn't had before? Oh, there's no feeling like it. There's no feeling like progress. And, and that's, like I said, that's why I'm so eager to compete so often is because that's when you get to really see the progress you've made. And like I said, there's no feeling like it. A lot of fighters, I feel like, get caught up on the physical end. It's uh, how many rounds you can do, how hard you can do these rounds, et cetera. But nobody wants to break it down. My coach has a saying, it's just, you can't do it slow, you can't do it fast. And with that being said, I, I feel like once you break it down, you do it slow, you truly understand it, then you apply the timing and the knowledge that you already have with everything else, and you get to see it work, 
there's just no better feeling. I'm I'm always eager to learn because you never know it all. And even if you know something about what you're being taught, somebody can say it in a completely different way that makes it click like it's never clicked before. So I feel like being a student, and I know everybody says it is so important, it truly is. And fighting, fighting is very physical, but it's just as much mental as it is anything. You can have guys that's in the gym three times as much as you that don't progress as much as you do because they're so focused on the physical side. They don't want to do the mental side. And speaking of the mental side, how much game planning or watching Fatty or any of your opponents, do you tie into that mental side or is it more looking at the mental side of what you want to do? So you definitely have to take it in consideration. Obviously, uh, using Fetty as an example, he's, he's won very many fights with triangles, and he has very high-level jiu-jitsu. Um, with that being said, I have to think about these, I'm going to call them red flag areas. Now, does that mean that once you get there, you become a victim? Absolutely not. I feel like that's where a lot of people fall in. Um, for example, oh, I'm in this position. He does good in this position. I'm a victim. And with that being said, a lot of fighters lose before they ever get there. When you, <clears throat> when you think of these red flag areas, you think about, all right, well, I know how to play these areas. How do I play them to the best? You, you separate the emotion from it, and you look at it from a bird's eye view. And once you think about that technical position, then instead of se obsessing over shutting that down, you have to figure out how you're going to make that work into what you were best at. So really, for me, it's more about... How do I take what they do and make it work best for what I do? That's definitely where the cerebral approach comes in, why some people call MMA human chess, because you think of chess as strategy and planning and uh, maybe exposing their weakness or having your weaknesses exposed. And a lot of people don't think of MMA that way. The way you just said it is great, is that you, the chess part or the cerebral part is keeping your mind going to find a solution because sometimes when you get into a red flag area, if that, oh my goodness, they've got me, you know, that they're really good from this position or that position or whatever it is, then your body actually does less, not more, you know? Mm -hmm. And so continuing the brain thinking about uh, both in training and in the fight, how to make a good position for them, a good position for you. Uh, and that's really, really high-level thinking. When do you think in your amateur pro career that you first started to understand that concept right there, the concept that I don't have to be afraid of their best. I want to take whatever their game plan is and use it into my game plan. When, when did that start working for you? Um, truthfully, near the end of my amateur career, uh, I would say I fought a guy named Doug Williams. He was a very good wrestler, and uh, I spent my whole camp focused on how I was not going to get taken down, more so than how I was going to attack. And so I get in there, and I, I didn't get taken down, and then it's, you know, what do I do now? And then I would find myself thinking too much, and I would find myself uh, getting taken down because I would mentally freeze, and I didn't have these built-in reactions. I just had the reaction of stopping what he was good at. And so that kind of taught me, you know, you can, you can shut down what they're good at, and you have to address it, because if you don't, you're, you're fighting very arrogant. And, and not confident, but arrogant if you think that you're never going to end up there. If, if I thought that I was not going to end up in a wrestling exchange, I would have been silly. So with that being said, you also can't dwell on that. And that, that fight kind of taught me that I had to figure out how to take 
what they do and make it work better for me. And ever since then, I, I've been unbeaten. And even in my last amateur fight, see, in Virginia, we fight from the first fight to your last amateur fight, you fight with pro, pro rules. Knees of the head, elbows, heel hooks, etc. And my last fight as an amateur was under UMass sanctioning. So when I took my opponent down and I got him in a heel hook, I got disqualified, even though I had thought that I'd won. He tapped, he even thought that I won because the rules surprised him as well. So it was the worst thing in the world. To, the wor Something I've discovered is worse than losing is winning and then losing, if that makes any sense. So I, I feel like that fight really taught me to plan around. And then when I got into that last amateur fight and I treated it with this new approach, it worked out really well for me, even though the, you know, the mark on my record didn't go in the favor I wanted. And so I just applied that approach moving forward and it's worked out for me since. Well, that's actually not only a great note about how your amateur career ended. It's one of the reasons why going pro or like you said, fighting in Virginia is it's different because some fighters can be really, really dominant in amateur ranks where there's all these different rules. Like in Pennsylvania, there's three levels. You, you might not even know this. You might because you, you're right from South. But there's actually three levels of fighting in Pennsylvania. There is full amateur, which is shin guards, no elbows, no knees to the, to the head, no ground and pound, and no kicks to the head. Um, stand it and then advanced amateur which of course you're now pro none of this matters but advanced amateur people always say oh it gives me ground and pound technically it doesn't give you elbows either standing or on the ground and you still don't have knees to the head but you have kicks to the head so you get kicks to the head but then only closed fists to the ground and even there that's a difference from full pro because we've seen full pro the difference between fist ground and pound and elbow ground and pound and how much of a difference that is yeah. so there's so many different layers um so what do you think your your career doing so many fights in virginia how do you think that was for you fighting so many pro fights prior pro rule fights prior to actually fighting pro um it definitely played into my favor because you know once you were you know, you, you spoke about uh, beginner amateur, full amateur rules, and then they move up and they move up. Every time that you make that jump, you know, let's say you lose the shin guard, now you worry about your bare shin. Let's say that you add in the ground and pound. These are things that you have to work up to. So then when you turn pro, they're like, oh, man, I've got it all. And unless you have traveled to Virginia, which we've had several people from Pennsylvania travel down and fight in Virginia, you, it's, it's a new experience for you, especially as a debut. And then let's say that you're three or four fights in, this is all something new to you. For me, this is my 33rd fight total, none of those being boxing, every other fight being with completely professional MMA rules. So for me, this is just another day in the office, whereas to people that have been fighting with those limited rules, which don't get me wrong, I understand, are to protect those people. Those people have to go to work the next day. So I, I definitely don't think it's bad. But I think if your goal is to eventually make this your career, that you need to experience that before you turn professional. So for me, this is, you know, just another fight. So, Well, definitely your level of experience uh, with the rule set you've had and the, the number of amateur fights is much more than some other people that are pro already but don't have that experience. You also bring up a reason why I think a lot of this goes back, as we were talking about some of the nuances 
of amateur, a lot of this goes back to how the coaches train. And I think part of training an amateur, I, I like to think part of training an amateur is you train them a level, at least one level above what they're going to be fighting. So in Pennsylvania, that's training pure amateurs for at least amateur rules, at least training that they understand um, not to put their head down into a position where they could get need, even if mm-hmm. that is not going to be allowed. Because one of the things that, that I think happens a lot is some um, poor, you might say laziness or some poor technique comes out of I understand why Greg Serb and plenty of other commissioners like a developmental process. They like, and I actually think there's some advantages to Pennsylvania's rule set. But if you never learn to block a head kick because you fight, let's say, 10 fights amateur um, or whatever it is, and you never learn to block a head kick, then that's going to be a problem. Or you don't learn whether or not put your head as far as knees go. Or when you get on your back, you have a really lazy, you don't protect your head because you're not used to getting uh, ground and pound. I mean, that's a lot of stuff that I think coaching can come along and say, we don't care that you're not going to get punched in the head in this fight on the ground. You have to protect yourself as if you are. Do you, do you coach the up-and-coming amateurs that way? And how much coaching or how much influence do you have on some of the people around you in the gym? Oh, man. Uh, so like, where you had spoke about people exiting the clinch, I remember one particular event. I would seen some people come from actually West Virginia to Virginia. Uh, and see, in West Virginia, we have a similar rule set as Pennsylvania. Like I said, it's just uh, where it's newer. And so I've seen them try to leave the clinch by leaving out the bottom, and every yeah. single one of those ended with knee TKOs. Uh, as far as our gym, yep. our amateurs are treated as professionals. So therefore, mm-hmm. if you want to fight, you have to show us that you want to fight. There's no training two to three days a week. There's no, oh, I'm sore, coach this, coach that. And you get treated at the same level. If you were fighting your third pro fight and you're fighting your third amateur fight, we're going to push you just as hard. Because eventually, you're going to be the guy that's in your third pro fight, and we want you to be as confident and comfortable as possible. Now, I do agree with what you said, that the coaching in Pennsylvania is definitely trained not just for the specific rules. And I would be crazy to think that they're, you know, they're not training blocking head kicks, ground and pound, etc. But at the same time, when you get in there and you have a bare shin with somebody that's not going to protect you flying at your head, it's a lot more nerve-wracking than normal. So I feel like that is definitely an advantage, but at the same time, you need that experience and that feedback, whereas most of our fighters do fight even as amateurs with professional rules. So we train them certainly as if they were professionals. There's not a fighter in our gym that's a, a part-time fighter. Well, that's a great, that's a great way to advertise for Advantage Martial Arts. So if you're in the Princeton, West Virginia area, you're hearing it directly from Jeremy the Adonis Mitchell about the, the training strategy. I think whoever taught the amateur fighters to duck out the bottom of a Muay Thai clinch, that's just terrible. There's no, there's no value to that. You can't use that in a pro fight. You can't use that on the street. I mean, there's really no value to learning that. And, and I think there's times where coaches have to kind of say stop just because it worked doesn't mean it's good. And sometimes that doesn't make sense to fighters because like I've often taught fighters that just because you leave your head up and exposed and you punch and your hand comes down by your knee before it comes back up to your face and you're fighting or sparring or even live combatant and they didn't counter that 
doesn't mean somebody can't and doesn't mean that's good technique. And that's why I think one of the things about being technical is there's no such thing as a perfect fight. You know, mm -hmm. um, you can have a 10 second knockout win and still say, man, there's things I need to improve about that because the desire to be the Adonis, for example, right? <laughs> the, the real desire to be Adonis is that you know just how much can go wrong and that you know just how many times you did it wrong to get it right. There's an expression in philosophy. It's a, it's a um, sort of a mindset that goes to the more you know, the more you know that you don't know because it's wonderful to get new guys in the gym, right? And they're excited to just be able to throw two punches. And, and frankly, that's very important. However, when you get the person that is excited to learn two punches, the amount of information they know is so little that they don't realize that there's so much that they don't know. Cause they think, Hey, this is great. I got two punches. But then when you're 30 fights into your career, you know how much you don't know because you know how much you now know. So you're exposed mm -hmm. to so much more, and that's like a great part of the developmental process. Um, and so we could obviously talk about philosophy of training, which I think is so um, exciting. Do you have coaching aspirations um, along with fighting or after fighting, or are you mainly full ahead as much as I can learn to fight but not as big into the coaching? Where are you on that spectrum? Because every fighter is different on that spectrum. Oh, man, I am all in fighting, but at the same time, we had spoke earlier about how fighting is not, not a, uh, an individual sport as much as people think. So with that being said, every time I learn something, every time I apply something, I feel like that's something also that I can bring back to my team, and every time I bring that back to my team, my team gets better, and in turn, I get better. So at the same time, coaching and training, to me, aren't as separate as people would think. For me, it's, uh, it's all in one. So is there a day that I do nothing but coach? No. But do I coach every day? Absolutely. I run a kids' class. Um, I teach kids jujitsu. I also help with the adult wrestling class. So with that being said, in the adult wrestling class, for example, I'm pushing these guys. I'm teaching these guys. But at the same time, I'm also pushing myself and teaching myself. And I feel like as teaching, I've developed the ability to learn techniques deeper, more in depth, and with seeing how other people mentally receive what that I, like what I show them and how I say it because I might be able to teach you and somebody else the same move, the same technique, and at the same time, one person gets it and the other one doesn't. Does that mean that you can't get it? No, it just means that I might have to teach it a different way. And when I show it to you in a different way, I now understand it in a different way. So it's like I also get to see how different fighters think. So then when I watch a fighter move and I see that similar pattern that I see in a fighter that I coach, I know similar to how they're thinking as well, which makes it easier for me to dissect them. Absolutely. You talk about layers to the game. It's the same reason why I might know my ABCs and how to read, but man, is it harder to teach a kid their ABCs and how to read because it's how their brain takes that information. And I might be good at doing it myself. And like you said, if you try to teach a skill exactly the way you learned it. Some people are going to get it. It's going to be like, yeah, they learned it exactly the way it works for you. And then the other people aren't. And it's nice how you said, not only does that make you a better coach, being able to explain the same thing different ways or be able to get somebody to learn a different way, but it actually helps you dissecting your opponent because they're one of those type learners. They've come up and learned maybe three or four or five different ways. And the way that you now can see them move 
connects back to maybe not the way you move, but the way one of your students move. And I think that's why it's so valuable to constantly be teaching and coaching alongside, which is wonderful. Uh, well, Jeremy, it's been just so great having you on the show today. Can't wait exactly two weeks from today, March 14th, Prince Cape Arena, you're going to be fighting. Uh, why don't we close it out with you talking about um, your, your gratitude, your thank yous, and if you want to make any predictions or statements about the fight. Um, man, uh, just the, the gratitude that I have to shout out, I would just shout out my whole gym. But honestly, this camp, the two people that have worked the most with me would be my head coach, Derek Lambert. He's a, he's a professional boxer, and he's helped me beyond belief, uh, especially within instilling the technique, but also the confidence. And he's just helped me beyond measure. He's been here since I was 12. He knows how I work. He knows how I think. And so he really knows how to coach me. Uh, with that being said, too, one of my main training partners has been a guy named Brett Summers. He's a super high-level grappler, super high-level striker, and he's, he doesn't even have a fight coming up. He's been in here with me every day working like, like he's the one fighting, and, and it means the world to me. And, of course, Southwest Martial Arts, they've invited me down. They've put me through it. They have treated me as if I was one of their own fighters, uh, and especially one, uh, Greg Ring, the head coach down there, and uh, his son, Robbie Ring which is a very high prospect, uh, undefeated amateur, I believe seven or eight and oh, and they really pushed me. As far as predictions and stuff go, I think, um, I think this is easily a fight that you have two guys going in that could easily be in toward the UFC, and you could watch this fight there. And it's just fortunate for everybody in the surrounding area that it's this close to home that they get to watch it there. Uh, we're both two elite-level fighters. He hasn't fought anyone like me, and... I think it's going to give us a chance to both stand in there and show something that we've never got to show before. So, I mean, obviously I have my predictions on who's going to win, but I think it's going to be a very good fight. I'm excited. I have nothing but respect for Fatty, but as soon as the cage door closes, the respect's gone. As soon as the cage door opens up again, the respect's back. Well, it's a great attitude to have. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Jeremy, the Adonis Mitchell catch him live at the Princecape Arena, March 14th, for 247 Fighting Championships.